1: PlushCare Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zeppound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com weight weightloss. That's plushcare.com weight weightloss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Girl, real talk.
2: This whole it's a new year, time to reinvent myself trash is not the vibe for 2024. You can find someone who loves you for you, as you are. You don't need to read a stack of self-help books, only eat sad salads, or like start meditating at 5 a.m. to be ready for dating. So yeah, my advice is to
0: download Bumble and find someone who embraces you the way you are right now. Let me know how it goes. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition.
1: The things that are giving me comfort, not as a writer, just as a as a person, are things like music and poetry that remind me what kind of world I want to live in. You know, I was reading poems and I was listening to music that kind of gave me hope for the future, and in a way, it was reminding me, you know I'm not just fighting against things, but I'm fighting for things as well there's a vision of a world that I want my kid to grow up into and art is giving me a glimpse of that.
3: I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward.
0: Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Big box retailers, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a bill in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. Senate Bill 1838 would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, visit handsoffmyrewards.com and tell them to oppose credit card routing legislation paid for by the Electronic Payments Coalition.
3: Hi, we are back after our little summer hiatus, which we spent resting up and reading and planning some big new projects that are going to be coming soon to Thresholds. We've also lined up a bunch of fantastic guests for the fall and winter, and we're starting off today with Celeste Ng. You probably know her as the author of the novel Little Fires Everywhere, which was a New York Times number one bestseller and then a Hulu series starring Reese Witherspoon and Carrie Washington. Ng is also the author of the novel Everything I Never Told You, and she's got a new book coming out in just a few weeks called Our Missing Hearts. Our Missing Hearts centers 12-year-old Bird, whose Chinese-American mother has disappeared shortly after a poem she wrote became central to a resistance movement against the U.S. government. The U.S. has imposed totalitarian rule and adopted a set of anti-Asian laws that are supposed to, quote, preserve American culture. The book is a kind of exploration of some of the troubling undertones of real contemporary American politics, but it's also an exploration of the parent-child relationship and of the role of artists in troubled societies. It's really beautiful. I was really excited to get to talk to her about it. Ing and I talked about the existential crisis that hit her in the last few years when she questioned what novel writing could contribute in the midst of the social problems facing us and how profoundly having her own son changed her writing. Here she is.
1: Everybody seems to have thoughts about when or if you should have children around your writing career. You know, generally the advice is don't or get your books together. You know, it's helpful. Uh, get your books together first. Get yourself established in your work, and then have children, or maybe only have one child. You know, there's there's all this advice that's been floating around throughout the ages where people talk about how to fit your children and your writing life in particular together you know the story about the the pram in the hallway that kind of ruins your whole writing career and so i i just had this sense that it was going to be a big sort of weight on the the scale pan so to speak to balance out and i was nervous about doing that because i knew it was important to me to have a kid and it was also important to me to to write this book. That was something that I'd been wanting to do for a long time. And I was nervous about putting those two things together. I had been working on this book for a long time already at that point. I guess this was in 2009. And so I'd started this novel when I finished my graduate program. So that was in 2006. So it had been three years already. I had finished the program. I had moved cities, uh, you know, I, I was still trucking away with this book. I still wasn't really totally sure how how to put it together. I was still going, do I know how to write a book? And it got to the point where I was also really feeling like I didn't want to wait to try to have a child anymore. And I decided, well, I, I'm just going to go ahead and, and try it and see what happens. I mean, biology kicked in. I did not believe in a biological clock really until I got to that point and I suddenly was like, Oh my God, I think I need to do this. Uh, I think this is the right time. And so I I got pregnant and I said to myself, Okay, I'm I'm just gonna have to finish as much of the book as I can. At this point it's kind of a blur. I don't even remember exactly where in the process I was, but I knew that I had an idea of what the story was. And so I at least had that to come back to. I had a draft or maybe two drafts. And I also knew that I wasn't where I needed to be. And in a way, actually the pregnancy and then those early few months of parenting, when I really wasn't able to sit down at my desk at all. I mean, I was barely able to sleep and eat. It ended up actually being Useful in the end because it made me step away from the project, like a really hard stop for a while, in a way that ended up being productive. It made me really pause and think about the characters rather than trying to push forward on the page. I often try to kind of sit down and keep writing, even when what I really need is to take a step back and and think more. And in this case, it happened to be helpful that I could not sit down at the page and write. I couldn't, you know, I I wasn't at my desk for months. And having to just be with my thoughts and be with the characters and think about them for a little bit, I think ended up being the key for me to figure out who these characters were and what the missing pieces were so that I could put the book together.
3: Oh, I'm so curious what changed for you when you stepped away and were thinking in that period of thinking like what how how did the book take shape differently after
1: that a, a big part of the the novel i realized has to do with parents and children and the ways that they want the best for each other but they don't really understand each other and maybe they can't even explain themselves to each other and in the first few drafts of the book i was really doing my best to try and imagine this from both sides I was trying to imagine what it might be like to be a parent, but of course, I hadn't had that experience yet so really i was I was kind of doing this sort of ventriloquist act. I was sort of you know doing my best to mimic the voice and the concerns and the thought processes of of a parent and because I hadn't gone through that yet, I think that's why I got it wrong. Um, I think other people maybe can imagine their way in that, but i I couldn't. And then after I had my son, even in those early days, I started to really see my own relationship with my parents differently. I started to go, oh, I I kind of see why you did X, Y, and Z thing, which never was clear to me before. But now I'm starting to get a sense of of almost what I didn't realize before. Can you give me an example? Yeah, I think... I think, you know, as a kid, I knew my parents cared about me, right? I never, I I was lucky. I never had questions about whether I was important to them. I never had questions about whether they were going to be there for me. They, they always were. But I think there's knowing something and then there's understanding it where you really realize like, oh, when your kid is unhappy, it's this terrible, terrible feeling. Um, And I started to know that pretty much right off the bat when my son was born to feel, you know, there's this little person that I made who's completely dependent on me and he's crying and I I don't know what he needs, but I really need to fix this right now. There was this sort of primal urgency in, you know, trying to go, Oh God, I really want you to be happy. Whatever it takes, I will do that. Right. Um, you know, he's, he's a baby. What he needed was, you know, to be fed and then to, to have a nap. Um, but I started to get a sense of, Oh, my parents probably felt this too, you know, for years and years from when I was a baby towards when I was an adult towards, you know, all the way up until, you know, this very moment, they're probably like, Oh, what, what can I do to try and make your life better? And I, I knew that before, but I don't think I really felt it until much later
3: i'm so curious about that moment where your son is crying and he's a baby and you have that huge f- impulse to do anything to make make it better did you was that an experience of feeling powerful of feeling helpless of feeling scared like what was the what was the tenor of that of that experience
1: mm-hmm. It definitely wasn't feeling powerful. I I feel like I have felt the least sure of myself at the moment where they put this baby into my arms and we're like, here he is, and I had this moment of going, oh god, I am not ready for this. I don't know anything about being a parent. I don't know anything about babies. This is uh, take him back because I'm not ready. Right? I you know I <laughs> very much wanted him, and yet at the same time I had this immense feeling of almost like if you're going out in the, in the ocean and you're, you're waiting at the beach and then you get to one of those points that's a drop off and you didn't know it was there. And all of a sudden you're plunged in way over your head. Mm -hmm. It was, it felt like that. So it was, it was partly fear, but it wasn't fear for myself. Exactly. It was really more fear of, oh, I have this responsibility to this little person and I might have bitten off more than I can chew. Do I, am I going to mess them up? I think maybe that was the, the feeling, you know, am I immediately going to, in the first, you know, 10 minutes of us knowing each other, you know, irrevocably scar him by (laughs) not immediately deciphering his, his clues. Um, There's a really great book that I read recently uh, called The School for Good Mothers that I feel like hit this feeling so deeply. That sense in which there are about a million things that you're expected to do and that you want to do and you need to do. And yet it might not really be possible to do all of them at the same time, let alone perfectly.
3: Yeah. Jessamyn was on the podcast. Yeah, that such I remember a, that. It's such an incredibly beautiful book. And But what's interesting about what you're describing and kind of what I read in that book too, that's a complicated... It's a complicated dynamic she's describing but you're yeah. like that what you're describing is is power right it's just the terror of power of being yeah. so complete having such overpowering control to determine how this tiny helpless creature does in the world um but not feeling like that's a good like a good or 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 happy kind of power necessarily
1: yeah, I hadn't thought about that, but I guess that's true. It is it is in a sense it's power, but it's almost sort of power without without necessarily feeling like you have the skill or the ability to wield right. it properly. It's like being put in the driver's seat of a really big vehicle like a like a tank and not being given any lessons or an instruction manual. Or yeah, it's 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 like being given a really big sword but you're not totally sure that you can pick it up. And if you can pick it up, you're not totally sure you're going to be able to put it down without cutting off your own toe or someone else's toe. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's right. It's Those those things are sort of flip sides of each other, the power and the responsibility. Um, a lot of it, I think, comes down to feelings of capability and a feeling like, okay, I I know what to do. And I think that very first moment of parenting was very much a feeling of going, oh God, I don't know what to do and I'm going to have to figure it out quickly.
3: Yeah. Had you ever had that experience before? The feeling of like, uh, oh, I've, I've got an obligation that feels way, way, way out past the limits of my, my current capacity? Or were you in the, in the habit of feeling pretty <laughs> up to the task?
1: I I like to feel up to the task. I am a, you know, type A goody two shoes kind of personality in and, and it's largely because I don't like feeling unprepared. So I do my homework because I really hate it when I have no clue what's going on. Right. I I read the instruction manual because I hate it when things beep at me or start malfunctioning and I don't know how to turn them off. It's for me it's it's not exactly about being in control, it's more of like I don't want to feel unprepared. Um and this this probably gets into a larger subject we may or may not go into but that I I'm realizing as I get older a lot of that I think has to do with how I grew up and in part being a, a racial minority for a large part of my early life, it made me feel in some ways like I need to be ready. I need to kind of always be having my best foot forward because the world is going to be looking for reasons to, to say that I'm unqualified or for, for nits to pick. And I kind of want to give them as little as possible to pick at, if that makes any sense.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And that dynamic feels like it really, really suffuses um, our missing hearts. Char- absolutely. Several of the characters are really working with that feeling. So I, I do want to hear more about how your relationship with that is changing. Is it that you feel like you are be- you said you're becoming more aware of it or your understanding of how that's
1: shaped you has changed? Yeah, I think I, I think the feeling is probably the same. It probably will never go away. Um, just because it's it's very deeply ingrained in me. I think when you grow up the way that I did um for the first ten years of my life, I was pretty much the only Asian kid in my in my neighborhood, in my school. Um, I was very aware that anything that I did would sort of be mapped onto all Chinese people and all Asian people and that had a that made a big impression on me it was a lot of again kind of responsibility to feel like i was carrying you know rightly or wrongly that i had to i had to sort of put up a good front and also be prepared because if i didn't know the answer people would go oh, well you know i guess that's how all asian people are it sounds so silly when you put it that way but I think there was something to that. And so now as I get older, I still have those same feelings of, well, I have to do not just 110%, but maybe 150 to 190% um, in order to make sure that there's not any place that people can find faults with me. You know, um, but I think now I kind of understand where that comes from and I can hopefully temper it a little bit but also i think just be a little kinder to myself and maybe be more realistic with myself in a way that's not exactly what i mean but just sort of tell myself like okay you know what some people are never going to like what i do no matter how well i do it or how hard i try to please everybody and that's that's got to be okay with me so i think maybe I hope I'm getting a little bit wider of a perspective as I get older, and I can, I can give myself a little bit more grace. I guess that's that's kind of what I'm what I'm aiming for.
3: Yeah, yeah. I I feel like that must be <laughs> a, like a mandate at a certain point. Because what I'm thinking about as I'm listening to you talk is the if you map on if you map this experience of feeling. um like you need to be prepared, like the pressure is on to be doing a good job at all times onto the experience of parenthood. And in particular, the feeling of early parenthood, where you think, oh my God, I am, I am in so far over my head, the pressure to be, uh, the pressure to represent perfection in some way mapped onto the pressures of parenthood, um, is quite a, is quite a pressure cooker.
1: Yeah, it, it absolutely is. Not an
3: uncommon one, but it, but like a very intense one. Yes,
1: I think that a pressure cooker is exactly right because you start to feel pressure from a number of sides. Like I think there is a lot of societal pressure on parents, but particularly on mothers to, as you said, sort of represent perfection. There's that idea that you have to be doing everything right. You have to be anticipating every possible problem and have the solution for it in your bag you have to be in control of yourself and of your child at all times and yet at the same time your own needs basically can't enter into the picture everything you do has to sort of put your child first and that's not that's not always wrong i think most mothers would want to say that they are of course putting their child first but i don't know that it's always possible I found in the early days of parenting, there were so many expectations that I realized eventually it's actually not possible to do that. Like basically they expect you to be responsive to your child's every, every need. And when I say they, I mean society, but also me, you know, as a, as a Mm -hmm. new mother, also you should be breastfeeding your child, but also you should be sleeping so that you can be attentive. And also you should be sleeping with your child, but not too close to your child because you might roll over on them. And you know, you start to hear all of these conflicting expectations. And eventually what I realized was, this is this is not possible. You could be a superhuman and you literally cannot do all of these things. And that's a hard realization to come to because what you're sort of saying is you gotta let go of something. You have to Mm. accept that you will not be 100% providing every single thing your child needs and probably not 100% what you need. And so you need to figure out sort of what everybody can live with, what you can live with personally, right, inside yourself. And, And that requires letting go of some of the pressure you were talking about earlier that's coming from within of saying, well, I have to do this. I have to be the mom who has got the wipes and also the extra bottle and also the nursing cover and also these things and anticipates when my child will need everything you you have to let go of that and for me that that's hard because I am again the sort of person who who feels like she needs to be more than perfect.
3: Yeah. What you're describing is a situation where you are truly and and everyone anyone who's kind of in that situation is out uh, is outmatched by by the, by the task, right? That there's just no, you cannot perfectly, um, parent and perfectly be a human and perfectly be a, like all of those things are, um, like vanishing horizons. And then when they all, all kind of overlap, they become extra, extra elusive and ephemeral. I'm curious to know what, um, how your relationship to writing changed as you were making those adjustments for yourself.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm going to go back one second and then come to the question because I think it's really interesting. I'm so glad that you mentioned sort of being a human in there because I feel like that was ultimately sort of what I was confronted with, which is that, you know, I am a human being and as as we all are. And that means that there are going to be things that we can't do. There are going to be imperfections that we can't remedy and that maybe we don't need to remedy. Like maybe that is actually not a bad thing to not be able to do things or to have limits or to have vulnerabilities. And so to go to your question, I think that is a big thing that changed in my writing is that I think that I started to have more compassion towards my characters, but also towards myself as a writer to say, well, these characters don't need to be perfectly rounded or sculpted and in fact it's better if they're complex because that's how people are that it's okay if they're doing things that maybe we wouldn't maybe we wouldn't want to do in real life but for fiction that's actually a good thing and it it felt like an important thing too to try and to try and capture some of that on the page to try and think about my writing as as focusing on the kind of messy complexity of being human. And so, I don't I never go into writing with a theme, but I'm starting to recognize, you know, now I'm on, I'm on my third book, one of the things that I'm interested in is that that complexity. A friend of mine who's also a writer, she's like, "I think your theme is irreducible complexity." Which I thought was <laughs> hilarious. But in a way, that's kind of right. Is to say that at a certain point, it boils down to it's complicated and it's messy. And in a way, for me, that's a way of saying we're human. This is, this is a human struggle and it's never going to come out exactly right. And that's maybe okay. And maybe one of the things that I'm trying to do in my writing is to just acknowledge that life is messy and people are messy and people are fallible and that there can also still be beauty in that. Um especially I think in in this third book that's something that I was really consciously aware of as I was writing. I was realizing like I'm writing about how individual people are and how they have shortcomings and yet that's also what makes them a person. And in a way one of the one of the arcs that I think Bird one of the main characters follows is recognizing that about the people in his life and in particular his mother recognizing that she is fallible and she's not perfect and she's done all these things and in a way seeing her as a human so there's there's a parallel there i think to that experience of parenting where i had to start to recognize myself as a human
3: in the book is a tension between the assertion you're making that humans are fallible and they can't be perfect and they have rough edges and they make mistakes and they fall down and that's kind of beautiful. Um, And the fact that often there are very high stakes around the mistakes that that people make because of their own personal fallibilities, uh, stakes that are sort of established by by a hostile world, so the you know the reality of this of this book is that there is kind of a, a new American regime that is very explicitly uh, anti Asian and in particular anti China, and the we see I think especially the father um, Bird's father tr- feeling the pressure of trying to teach. His half Asian son, his half Chinese son, to be safe by being, I don't know if perfect is the word, but by never making a mistake that anyone else can see. Yeah. Um, and I really felt that, you know, there's such a there's so much pathos in the tension there, which is that what he's asking of his son is sort of inhumane, really. Yeah. Um, and also you can completely understand why he feels like he needs to ask it. And that's a dynamic that I wanted to ask you about constructing. How did you construct that within the novel? And how did you sort of put put your own feelings about these dynamics into,
1: into that space? Yeah, I I think part of that came out of just experience that I've had. Looking back at my childhood, I thought that my parents were really demanding and perfectionist. And there's this stereotype of Asian parents generally, and I think Chinese American immigrant parents in particular, that they, you know, they're demanding and they will say, as my parents literally did say to me multiple times, you know, well, you got all A's, but where are the pluses? Right. And I <laughs> I thought, oh, this is because they're Chinese, oh, this is because they're high achievers, this is because they're just anal and nitpicky, you know, all the the various reasons i had to explain this and again sort of as i get older and the more i i the farther into parenthood i go i guess and also the more i sort of start to understand sort of how the world works and how the world was for them when they when they were young parents and i was a young child i realized that part of that was them trying to protect me or prepare me in the ways that bird's father does in the novel The, the hope that, that maybe is, is a little bit futile, but sometimes it's the best you can do of saying, well, if you can just be perfect, then maybe everybody will leave you alone. Right. It's like you said, it's, it's an impossible thing to ask. And yet at the same time, it's totally understandable because what you just want is for everybody to see your child as, as the person that you see them as. Um, did not come up very clearly. I guess To what you want is for your child to sort of have the smoothest possible path in the world. And you can't control the world that they're in. There's only so much that you can do about that. And so sometimes I think it feels like the easiest thing that you can do, or maybe the only thing you can do is to try and shape your child into someone who can navigate this really thorny unfriendly world as best as possible um and so i think part of of ethan's struggle in the book the father um in in the novel comes from seeing both sides of that that dynamic of both saying oh that was not a fun expectation to have as a child you know just kind of be perfect do everything as well as you can and just try to avoid attention and yet at the same time as a parent i see the flip side of it and i go oh i what would have been a better way for them to handle this i don't know and so it's also something that i'm i'm trying to figure out still as a parent of how do i prepare my child for things that i can't really protect him from like racism which he's he's going to face throughout his life. I can't, I can't change the world around him. I, you know, I'll I'll do my best, but at a certain point, some of it has to be how I teach him to respond to that. And I don't know what the right answer is. I think this is something that, you know, generations of, of, of many families of color, we keep on trying to figure out what's, what's the best way to prepare our children for worlds that are going to be really unfriendly to them.
3: This all happens also in the book against the backdrop of um, child removal. I think is the is the 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 phrase in the book of children being taken from their families yeah. by the government um, as a means of political control. A chilling thing to see happening in the book because it is so drawn from reality, which yeah. you note in your afterward. Um, and it just made me think about the fact that the. One of the things that that kind of uh, that kind of action robbing families of their children as a means of political control does is that it it passes the burden of enforcement of normativity on to the parents. They have mm-hmm. to enforce the normativity of their children and the obedience of their children to the state so that they get to keep their children, um, which is so ugly to ask the parents to be the enforcers of that kind of um, fascism, really. And you see in this book, you know, Bird's father, Ethan, and Bird's mother, Margaret, wind up kind of taking different um, approaches to that problem. And one of, I was so interested that one of them, that Margaret's approach is so bound up in art and art as resistance
1: I mean one of I mean one of the reasons that big question was on my mind the question being sort of like how how do we fight fascism essentially or authoritarianism if you you know you prefer to call it that and is there a role for art in this um I mean a lot of that really came out of the questions that I was asking myself over the past you know 5 6 years because It felt like we were living in a dystopia, like a lot of the, a lot of the things that were happening politically in the US and also abroad, they felt like the sort of things that we always wanted to believe, oh, those, those things can not happen, except of course they, they do. And they were, you know, they had been, and, and then there they were, right? You were having voting rights suppressed and you were having... You know, journalists and judges threatened and you were having racism kind of normalized and, and you were having families separated and all of those things. And I was, you know, sitting at home with my computer and feeling really useless. I was sort of thinking, like, well, I I make up stories about people who don't exist. And this feels, at least right now, like a really useless thing to be doing. You know, if I were like a, a if I were a, a lawyer or you know like a labor organizer or you know any anything like that, I could do something more tangible. But as a as a writer and as a fiction writer, I felt like, you know, what am I what am I doing with myself? And so I had this this sort of crisis of of faith and. Maybe it's rationalizing, but what I eventually sort of came around to was thinking the things that are giving me comfort, not as a writer, just as a as a person, are things like music and poetry that remind me what kind of world I want to live in. You know, I was reading poems and I was listening to music that kind of gave me hope for the future and in a way it was reminding me you know I'm not just fighting against things but I'm fighting for things as well there is a vision of a world that I want my kid to grow up into and art is giving me a glimpse of that where i think it's easy to forget that those things can exist art i think can kind of it can kind of like prop the door open to possibilities that aren't present you know, it can kind of remind you that the world can be different from the way that it currently is, which I think is something that's really easy to forget about. And that became one of the sort of driving questions in the book is to what extent can art do that? It I don't know that it can change the world, but it can maybe inspire us or encourage us to take the actions that we might need to take. And a friend of mine Whenever we talk about writing, they always say, "Give the problem of your book to your book." And so I tried to do that. I tried to make that a question that the character in the book, Margaret, was really grappling with. And for her, I think the art that she makes and the art that the other the other sort of resistors in the world, for lack of a better term, are doing. In a way, the act of them creating something or making something is is sort of the opposite of the fascism that they're confronted with because the fascism says, this is the way to do it. And what art is doing is saying, well, but what if we do it this way? What if we make it another way? And I think that's, that's kind of how that question worked its way into the book. It, it was really, I was grappling with that myself.
3: Yeah, there was a moment in the book that I was really... Um that has stuck with me and i don't i'm going to paraphrase the line so you'll have to help me but it it, it it's a realization functionally that these big art installations that resistors are are creating in the book um people people look at them in a way that and, yeah. and the press will cover them in a way that protests will no longer be covered um, because there's something Un- There's a rupture happening where the art yeah. is happening, whereas it's, it's somehow the sort of protests and other kinds of political action have been a little bit more absorbed into the routine, or or are easier somehow to target by the government, right? But the the art makes this big public rupture, and people want to look at it, and it yeah. actually is able to make people think um, in this in this kind of sneaky and untraceable way. And I really had, I mean, I had a similar. I think maybe a lot of people did a similar um, crisis of faith <laughs> around um, around the profession, around writing in general. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of and us did. In yeah, and I'm like, what on earth? You know, like what are we doing? We should be doctors or something. You know, like something, or we should be, you know. Yeah, I, I had the
1: same feeling. Right, I was like, oh, if I, especially once COVID hit, I was like, if I were a doctor. I could be doing something really tangibly useful. I could be trying helping. to save people's Right. I could be helping in a really a way that you could see and then I could see and feel. And I would be a terrible doctor. Um, <laughs> I, I don't have the mindset for it. And I'm very squeamish. And, you know, I would be bad at it. But there is that sense of like you're doing something. It's really clear what you're doing. And as a writer and, you know, any kind of creative person, it's hard. It's harder to see that. Um, yeah i feel i feel you <laughs> i I think one of the reasons that i I had sort of art protests in the book rather than just you know like a a political protest or a strike um is that art always surprises me by kind of coming in sideways in my own life. I'm a really big fan of of public art and of guerrilla art, but any kind of art that i I really feel deeply. I often I often am not expecting it, and I think that's one of the reasons that that it can affect us, because op-eds or political speeches or you know, people coming to your door to explain the latest ballot initiative, those are all really important, but in a way, they're coming to you on a rational plane. They're coming to you to try to persuade you. And that works in some cases. But art often kind of hits you when you're not looking, which means, as you said, it's sneaky. And I think it also bypasses all that kind of rationality and it kind of snakes around that and hits you right in the emotions. And in a way, because you're not expecting it, it gets your attention in a way that other things don't. It kind of stops you in your tracks and it makes you pay attention. And it can be really easy to kind of get inured to overtly political things. And you can't see me because this is a podcast, but I'm putting like air finger quotes around that because I think the question of what is political is is really important. But I'm thinking, for example, um, during the height of the the first uproar about family separations at the US-Mexico border. Uh, This group, Raises, staged these essentially art installations on the corners of major cities where they put little chain link cages and they put a little figure wrapped in a Mylar blanket that looked like a child. And they played a recording that had been smuggled out of some of the detention centers where children had been separated from their parents. and. It really startled people, I think, and it got attention to this issue in a way that lots of op-eds and lots of news stories didn't. We need those things too, but some people can go, oh, the news is so depressing, I'm not going to look at it. It's easier to turn away from those things. It's maybe harder when you're walking down the street going to work or going to the store and you see a cage and you hear a child and you're forced to confront that. It's a little bit harder to look away from that in some ways because it's unexpected. And that's one of the things that I think art can do is it can kind of, again, sneak its way in sideways and almost ambush you, but in a good way, if that's possible, if it's possible to ambush someone in a good way. That was something
3: that I, I think I had, I think I needed to be reminded of. Um, so thank you for that. But and also my my question about that is how how explicitly you think of your novels as um creating interventions of that kind. Oh, that's a good question.
1: I I I don't think of them as having that as their main purpose. At least certainly not the first two. I never I never go into a novel or really any story thinking about sort of what is the lesson that I want to impart because for me if I do that and I did try doing that as a as a teenager you know we get a lot of feedback from middle and high school English classes where you get you know what is the what is the moral of this story right and you're trying to boil you know hamlet down into kind of an aphorism because that's, that's, I think, how we're often taught to approach literature at first. And so as a teenager, I would go, okay, I want to write a story about death. And then you know, you try and write the story in that sort of top-down way. And for me, it always comes out very stiff and rigid. And so when I come to a story, and, and for each of my three novels, I always approach it from sort of the bottom up. I always come from character first. And so it has to be a human story, I think, for me to get into it. And ultimately, if I've dug deep enough, hopefully it does brush up against some kind of larger question or theme for the reader. But I always think first about the books as writing about people and about these particular people and what they might do in this situation. And then if the book comes in sideways and gets people thinking about those sort of larger big questions, then I'm really happy. But I think that has to be a secondary or even tertiary purpose for me. It has to really first and foremost be about people and interesting situations that I want to spend time with first, or else I'll never get the book read. And then the reader also has to find that interesting, or they'll never they'll never finish reading the book. And all of that other stuff, I think, really comes out of just that interest in humanness. Ultimately, that might be what we're talking about, with both these these art installations or the sort of surprise of art is in a sense it's connecting us back to humanity and of thinking, There are other people out there, as basic as it sounds. It's it's easy to I think for for people to forget that sometimes, and then to think they're they're interesting, and what's happened to them is important, and its maybe even important to me, and therefore we're connected to each other, therefore, I care about what happens to this other person, whether we're talking about families that have been separated, whether we're talking about fictional characters, whether we're talking about our family members, whatever it is, that sense of like, oh, your feelings are also important to me. As basic as that sounds, I feel like that's, I've gone pretty far from your question, but I'm going to finish. Anyway, I feel like in a way, that's ultimately sort of my highest purpose as a writer is trying to get the reader to feel like they are part of a society to be thinking about other human beings and how they're related to them
3: I was thinking about the fact that when we started talking about how profoundly changed you felt by becoming a parent and part of what you're you're describing this like teaching you know imparting the the message of caring about other people and feeling yourself as part of a society is also seems like a core parental
1: yes absolutely. Oh, you, you kind of turned a little key and a whole little door in my brain opened up. I'm like, you're exactly right. Because, um, a, a friend of mine who also had young children somewhere in the toddler age for my son, she said, yeah, like, of course, this is really hard because you're trying to teach your child to be a human. And I was like, oh, you're completely right. That is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to teach him to be a human being who cares about human beings which is to say who 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 lives in a society and that's complicated no wonder this is difficult no wonder i'm having such a hard time and when you put it that way you know you realize the enormity of what parenting or raising a child in any way is you are really trying to teach them like you need to think about other people um but of course that is fundamentally sort of what we're trying to do right you're trying to be like You know, when all the things, all the parent cliches use words, you know, don't hit other people, treat other people the way you want to be treated. What you're trying to do is essentially trying to teach them to be part of society and to be human. And alongside of that is also teaching them, I think it's okay to make mistakes and you're not going to get this right. And things are hard. And I make mistakes too. That's one thing that. As my son gets older, I'm trying to really emphasize being like, yep, you caught me in a mistake. You're totally right. I'm tired. I made a mistake. That's what we do. Now we'll fix it, right? To kind of normalize that that fallibility and that sense of, again, sort of being a human being and letting him know you don't have to be perfect, it is okay to not know things, and it is okay to do things wrong. I swear that the number of times that I, in my life, in all the interviews, where someone will eventually do a big supercut of me just saying like, "I am a human. I'm a human as a human," and it'll just sound like I'm an alien trying to convince people that I am in fact, <laughs> I'm like, yes, I am a regular human being. But it's true. I I feel like you know there's there is a sense that you know when we talk about humanity it it sounds really like cheesy and overly sincere which is maybe kind of my brand but that's really sort of what i'm thinking about is just sort of as you said getting other people to see that things are complicated and we're complicated and it's messy and i guess that's the overlap between what i see my role as a parent as being. And then the things that I'm trying to write about in my books is just acknowledging that complexity and that messiness. And the best word I can come up with for it is humanity.
3: Thresholds is produced by Drew Broussard. Music and editing by Laura Faye Osherwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Lorelai Grossman. Special thanks to Justin Alvarez and our hosts at Lit Hub Radio. You can find out more about our show, listen to past episodes, and get in touch at our website. This is thresholds.com If you're listening to this on a podcast platform and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. Or you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you normally listen, and subscribe and review us there. Thanks. We'll see you next week.